Each day, all over the world, thousands of healthcare learners experience the power of simulation. This is the BS Podcast. Wait, what? 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 Beyond Simulation. Exploring the stories of the people behind these masterfully implemented simulations. Each episode discovers the real stories of how these connoisseurs got into simulation and why they stayed. This is the Behind the Music podcast of the world of simulation. Hi, everybody. My name is Christine Park, and I'm the director of the Simulation and Integrative Learning Institute at the University of Chicago College of Medicine. And one thing about me that's not simulation is that I just started a book by Seth Godin called The Practice. And he asserts that we shouldn't first do a bunch of stuff and then wait to be whatever it is we are. We should first be and then do and so by this definition, I am an indie singer-songwriter. I bet you didn't know that. I did not know that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, my name is Bob Kaiser, and I am the Associate Director of Sale. And one thing about me that is not simulation-related is that, um, so my family are all artists. My aunt, my dad, um, even um, one of my grandparents um, had uh, something in Guggenheim, uh, the straw um, straw uh, 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 dolls uh, that, that were uh, from the Appalachian Mountains. Um, but I, myself, uh, cannot even draw a stick figure, so I did not get that talent. But um, I love looking at their work, so that's me. Wow, that is really cool. I hadn't known that about you, Bob. I know. They're, they're really cool things. <laughs> All right, Bob, are you ready to talk some BS? I am. But, Christine, did you read in the newspaper about this Danish artist who uh, presented this piece of work that was, uh, well, people were definitely talking about it. So um, what happened was that uh, this Danish museum gave this artist $84,000 to create this masterpiece. What he returned was two empty canvases. The artist, uh, Jens Hanning, uh, so the blank canvases um, was called Take the Money and Run, and it was a commentary on poor wages. One thing it's not, he says, is that it is not theft. It is a breach of contract, and a breach of contract is a part of the work. So um, actually, you know what? I think I could do some art. I could be an artist. Wow. <laughs> I don't have $84,000, but you can still produce some art for sale. There I could. Uh, just, just so you know, there's still in, uh, talks about if the museum is going to sue him or not. But um, it's interesting wow. nevertheless. Yeah. I think they should display the, the canvases. They are. They, it's, yeah. it's on display. So wow. let's That's go. Cool. <laughs> yeah, you All could right. always argue that they're simulated paintings. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And There you go. And with that, it's my pleasure to welcome our guest for today to the podcast. This is uh, Dr. Dinker Pai, who is the director of the Medical Simulation Center and professor of surgery at Mahatma Gandhi Medical College and Research Institute at Pondicherry, India. Welcome, Dinker. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And Dinker, what are three things that you would say you're professionally known for? Professionally, if you want uh, three things that I'm known for, I would say firstly simulation, secondly simulation, and thirdly simulation. But having said that, um, I have been a, a practicing surgeon as well, uh, though I'm not 
into clinical practice so much now, but uh, I did have a name for myself as a general surgeon when I was practicing um, in my younger days. That's very cool. Did you have a specialty in, in general surgery? Uh, at the time when I trained uh, here in India, um, there were not that many people going in for, for the subspecialization in general surgery. So I was, uh, you know, true bread and butter general surgeon and have performed operations uh, ranging from uh, burr holes for uh, intracranial hematomas, uh, breast, thyroid, abdomen, peripheral uh, limb tumors, etc. You name it, I did it. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, it's very impressive. And uh, Tinker, so um, each, each guest, we ask them to give us a certain amount of things that are not on their CV, that are not professionally related. And we spin uh, a random uh, number generator. And uh, what we did is for you, we got the number three. So one out of five, we got the number three. So give us three things that are not on your CV. Okay. Um, so outside of my work, I like to play chess um, and bridge. Uh, in fact, my wife complains that I'm a little obsessed with these. I can't claim to be very good at them, but I do enjoy playing. And uh, the third thing, I suppose, would be uh, related to my family. That's my daughter um, who has carved out her own path in life. Um, so she doesn't want a nine to five job. So she's a scuba dive instructor. She's a professional uh, Odissi dancer, which is a classical Indian dance. She paints, she sings, and she rescues wildlife, especially injured birds. Uh, she rehabilitates them after, uh, you know, after getting them well. What an awesome career I went all of that. That sounds great. Now, where does she teach scuba diving? Or where, where does she scuba dive? In Pondicherry itself. We are oh, on the wow. coast of the country. And we have, they have created, we don't have natural corals here, but they have created artificial reefs and it's abundant with uh, fish life now. And uh, it's interesting how they did that. They sank a lot of uh, old cars, you know, scooters and uh, beer bottles uh, in concrete and, uh, it, you know, the uh, mollusks and all come and then the fish come and uh, now it's just teeming with fish life. Tinker, I don't know... Um if you know that Bob loves to scuba dive, so Bob, I see, I foresee a future to Pondicherry, India, at some point in your future. I do too. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going. <laughs> You're welcome anytime. All right. So now uh, we want to explore a little bit about your childhood. So they say that we always keep our inner child within us. So tell us a little bit about who is Kid Dinker. Frankly, I don't think I have ever outgrown Kid Dinka. Uh, the kid in me does come out, uh, especially within the immediate family where we like to play the fool a lot. Um, I have a physically and mentally challenged sister <clears throat> and uh, the greatest pleasure in my life is troubling her to no end. Um, you know, And uh, also when my children are there with me, we wrestle around, we play around. So... I really haven't um, outgrown my kid state, I think, uh, as far as uh, at least my personal life is concerned. So take us uh, to a day in the life of Dinker, age 10. Okay. Um, I don't remember very much 
<laughs> of the of the time when I was age 10. But uh, I think I was a pretty studious, regular, run-of-the-mill um, student, <clears throat> terrified of uh, practically everything, especially flying cockroaches. Uh, you know, I think we have, that's one of the imports from the U.S., which I simply don't like, uh, you know, the American cockroaches, the big ones. And uh, other than that, I was in, in Delhi growing up, uh, you know, with my schooling there. So we were a very close-knit family and uh, I used to play some games like the field hockey, not ice hockey, but field hockey and uh, dabble in uh, cricket as well. Wow. Um, so Tinker, tell us, how did you get into simulation? What has that journey been like? Frankly, I remember in, um, I think it must have been in 19, mid-1990s when I was uh, one of the uh, faculty at uh, JIPMA. JIPMA is Jawaharlal Institute of Postgraduate Medical Education and Research. Um, and this one of the uh, institutes of national importance uh, in Pondicherry. These institutes of national importance, if you like, are the creme, creme de la creme of uh, medical institutes in the country. And I was a faculty there. And I remember a, a simulation uh, product company had come to give a demo. And I was very skeptical about the whole thing. I said, we have enough patients. Why do we need these, uh, you know, in inverted commas, dummies, etc. Um, but having said that, we were using innovative teaching techniques in uh, 1995, 96. And one of the things that I was doing was using, playing a triage game with my undergraduate students where we used flashcards to indicate status of different patients. And <clears throat> the penalty was time. So each step that they took, they... It cost them five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes, depending upon what uh, action they were taking. And at a particular time in the game, say within 15 or 20 minutes, the first patient would die if it had not been, if he had not been assessed and, uh, uh, you know, uh, treated by then. So this was uh, what we were doing. And uh, we also created a papier-mâché model of a village because flooding is a common public health problem here. So we created a papier-mâché model of a village and said, okay, if this village floods and you are the medical officer there, what are the steps you'll take to safeguard the health of the students? So without realizing that we were doing simulation, we were actually doing simulation in the mid-90s. But if you see formally, I was pretty busy in my clinical practice till I moved to Malaysia in the year 2006. And when I moved to Malaysia, I clinical uh, work dropped drastically because uh, we were... I, pure medical school, uh, but they had a lot of these uh, simulators there which they had bought and they didn't know what to do with them. And I thought this is interesting because one of the areas which I had been working in when I was working in JIPMA was in trauma management and hospital, organizing hospital services for trauma. So I thought these mannequins could very well be used to teach trauma to the undergraduate students. And so I started playing around with them and using them without understanding too much about the way simulation works. But then I read and read, I read more I realized that there is a science to it. There's an educational science to simulation. And then I uh, sort of, you know, trained myself up in simulation pedagogy, as it were. So basically my journey, I would say the serious journey started from 2006. That's a common story about people having a quote unquote, as you said, dummy, you know, in their facility. And they're like, well, let's do something with it. And then all of a sudden simulation starts and then they, you know, find out about the methodology. So, uh, yeah, I can, I can relate to that. So what about today? What, what passions, what personal passions keep you tied to simulation? 
having experienced simulation for the last so many years i am very convinced that uh, this is the way to go especially uh, for uh, training in human factors you know in crisis resource management not technical non technical skills etc and this is an area as far as india is concerned that has not been well explored unlike in uh, many of the other countries where regular training goes on in these uh, areas in india that's not the case and <clears throat> whatever simulation that is happening now in india is more in the nature of task training so that was one of the reasons which motivated me to come back from singapore to india because i felt that the time was right people were opening up to the idea of simulation there was a time when i came and talked about simulation most of the people misunderstood as as stimulation so when i said that i'm going to give a talk on stimulation i had a full house and uh, you know 5 minutes into starting the talk i could see people starting to leave so now that has changed at least people know that there is a word called simulation without a t and uh, they are more and more becoming more and more aware of the importance of human factors uh, and patient safety issues so i'm finding that my work gets easier as i go along that's great I love that. I I also wanted to hear a little bit more about the card game that you were talking about back in the early days because um so much what we talk about is um advancing technology, technology, technology in simulation and yet some really impactful things can be achieved in a low fidelity way. And uh I don't know, Bob, maybe we That's should play this card game at sale. The, so the so the wrong decisions tell us again so the wrong decisions were penalized so by time by the way it works is i have time? on the blackboard i have a big uh, uh, like a spreadsheet sort of thing i draw columns and uh, rows so we have 10 i mean we had 10 patients and uh, the each column represented 5 minutes so i give the initial information to the students of those 10 patients so i say okay a bus has overturned and you're getting 10 patients coming into the emergency department you are the doctor you have a nurse to assist you every action that you take you obviously get tied up with that patient for that duration of time and other patients continue to deteriorate during that time so the initial information that is given to them is pretty sketchy so you have for example a patient coming in holding a blood stained hand and yelling his head off another patient brought in unconscious one patient coming in uh, by you know in india it's not that everybody comes in by ambulance or somebody has been brought in by an auto uh, rickshaw complaining of uh, not able to walk with a deformity of the leg so like that we just give some initial information based upon that initial information the students then decide which patient they want to see first so the moment they say okay i want to see this particular patient first then i give them the next uh, lot of uh, history and examination findings of that patient and that costs them 5 minutes So one of the patients would be, for example, a tension pneumothorax, and if they are 20 minutes into the scenario, that patient will die if uh, needle decompression has not been done by that time. So they will. So they have to say that I want to see this patient in respiratory distress first. But if they go to some other patient, uh, then they spend five minutes examining. So there is also like a red herring, if you like. There's a patient with 80% full thickness burns, which in a triad situation we would probably put it as non-salvageable. and uh, so if they go and start doing a dressing for that patient it will cost them about 30 minutes of time and in that time maybe two other patients would die so we would go through the entire uh, like you know simulated time till about uh, one and a half two hours into the scenario there'll be other patients who come in okay and deteriorate as they go along like a splenic rupture with intraabdominal bleed were initially stable but they they have to be rechecked to make sure that they are okay 
and everything was just on a blackboard and uh, we, I just had these flashcards. So the moment they say, I want to examine this patient, I pass them that examination card of that patient and they read it out and then they take a decision as to what to do next, whether to move on to another patient or to do something for that patient. And uh, so at the end of the game, then we see how many of the patients died and I explained to them that some patients who can't help it, they may still die. But we see whether the cause of death was preventable, did the patients die because you did not accurately triage them or was the death inevitable anyway. So then we have a good discussion on the process of triage. So that's what we were doing. That's excellent. With your permission, Dr. Pai, I will maybe adapt this game for use among the anesthesiology residents. Absolutely. Switching gears because the title of our podcast is Beyond Simulation. If you were prevented from doing anything that you do now professionally, so that's surgery, that's simulation, that's teaching, what would you do for work or a job? Um, and for the sake of this exercise, there's no financial risk. Okay. Um, one of the passions I've always had, or at least I think developed a little later in life, is the passion for flying. So I would say that if I wanted to be anything else uh, other than what I'm doing now, it would uh, probably be a pilot. In fact, I have a setup at home um, for on the computer for a flight simulation uh, game, and I do flight simulation a lot seriously. I mean, not just as a casual game, but including things like navigating and stuff like that. Wow, that's cool. What is, tell me about the fidelity of these flight simulation games. I suppose the fidelity depends upon how much equipment you want to buy and uh, use. Uh, so I don't have a very elaborate setup. I have uh, two or three computer screens and a joystick for uh, flying. Um, I get pretty good uh, fidelity with that because, because of the three monitors, I can look around and uh, look out of different windows of the plane. I've also... Uh, played around with virtual reality, uh, with putting on the virtual reality headset mm. and then doing the flying. Um, I find two problems with that. One is that the uh, maybe because of our internet connection speed, there's a little bit of uh, lag in the video component. And the second thing is you do start getting a little nausea, especially if the plane is you know turning or going up or down. So those are the disadvantages I found with virtual reality. But you can get a full set up with yokes, rudders, the works, uh, set, it, set up the whole, uh, uh, like a inside of a cockpit, and that would be pretty good fidelity, I would feel. Okay, so um, one great thing about simulation is that we can receive feedback and reflect on the choices that we've made. So what is a choice in your life that you encountered that uh, if you'd made a different choice would have taken your life on a different path? Thinking of uh, life choices uh, that I have made in the past, a life-changing moment in my life, which uh, is, you know, is very fresh in my mind. And uh, this was uh, when I was a first-year surgical resident. And uh, we, I was posted in uh, cardiac surgery. <clears throat> I was just six months into the job, obviously pretty green, uh, didn't know what I was doing. And I was given the responsibility of uh, monitoring this patient who had had a closed mitral valvotomy. And the patient was not doing too well. He was restless. He was sweaty. This was the middle of the night and I'd been on call for the previous two nights as well. So I was pretty 
tired and uh, getting more and more angry at the patient for not letting me rest because he was pulling out his lines, he was, uh, you know, pulling off his oxygen mask. And in those days, we did not, at least in our institute, have any of the sophisticated uh, monitoring devices. Monitoring of the patient was basically just looking at the ECG monitor that was connected to him. We, I don't even recollect our having a saturation probe at the time. And uh, so I did not realize that the patient's whole problem was hypoxia. And I thought it may be pain. And I gave him a pretty hefty dose of morphine after which, unfortunately, he went into respiratory arrest and uh, passed away. I informed uh, my consultant uh, who had operated on the patient that morning, and he came in. This was about two or three in the morning, and he came in, and he had a look at the charts. He had a look at the patient. Then he turned to me, and he said, uh, Dinka, you have killed this patient. And I, I was stunned. Basically, I was stunned, and my reaction ranged from immediate anger at his statement, how dare he accuse me of such a thing. I'm a good doctor. I'm a conscientious doctor. I have done everything in my power to save this patient. But as his words sank in and uh, as I reflected on my actions over the next uh, day or so, I realized uh, that what he had said was correct and that I had uh, not treated the patient fairly in my anger at you know, being disturbed by the patient because of my past baggage with uh, tiredness, with the previous days on call, I felt that I had not used my medical knowledge to the optimum. And so I did feel uh, pretty guilty about what I had done. And uh, this was something that was very impactful in my life. I do know that we don't use those words, uh, you know, when we deep talk to people and, uh, you know, telling them that, well, they may not have done something correct, but uh, I felt that those words were so harsh, they could have affected me either way. Luckily, they made me a stronger person. I learned from that experience and I grew from that experience. And ever since I've made a special effort to get into the minds of my patient, to empathize with them and to try and understand what they are going through rather than putting on, you know, looking at them through my uh, sort of colored glasses. Thank you so much for sharing that, Dinker. It really makes me think about um, how many of us perhaps all or most of us in healthcare have experienced that anger derived from impatience toward, towards our patients um, and how, um, how risky a position that is. And, and also the code of silence that surrounds us talking about these things openly. So I really want to thank you for sharing that here today. I want to take a pause um, in this moment because you were talking about Pondicherry and how special it was and, and perhaps that you could tell us a little bit about where you live. I wonder if you could share a little bit about that with us now. Pondicherry is a coastal city uh, south of Chennai, uh, which is in the south of India. So it's about 170 kilometers uh, south of uh, Chennai on the coast. And uh, you know that India was one of the colonized by the British, right, uh, for I think 250 odd years. Mm -hmm. uh, but Pondicherry uh, was one of the areas where the British could never come in because it was a colony of the French in those days. And the French and the British fought a number of wars over Pondicherry, but Britain, the English could never 
sort of defeat the French and uh, capture Pondicherry. So Pondicherry remained in the hands of the French throughout during the entire period of British colonial rule in India. And uh, the British left India in 1947 uh, after a lot of acrimony. And uh, there was another colony uh, of a European nation in India, uh, you may be aware of, that was Goa, which was under the Portuguese. And the Portuguese, after the British left, the Portuguese refused to leave Goa and the Indian army had to physically go and, you know, there was a, throw them out from, from Goa. The French, however, were much cleverer. They saw the writing on the wall and uh, they agreed to leave voluntarily. Um, I think it was 1956, if I'm not mistaken. And they transferred Pondicherry over to the Indian government, but they laid down some conditions that French culture should continue to get propagated in Pondicherry after we leave. <clears throat> and so since they left peacefully, uh, that was a condition that the Indian government agreed to. And we have the French consulate here. We have a lycée Francais here, which, uh, uh, you know, the French school. And uh, a lot of French citizens come here to serve uh, as part of their uh, foreign service in uh, Pondicherry. A lot of them like it and stay on. So there's a, a big French flavor to this uh, city. You get French wines, French cheeses. And in fact, uh, as a result of that, it's a tourist destination for people to come and uh, have continental uh, you know, flavor. And there are a lot of local people. The local language is Tamil. And you'll find these, you know, they are sweepers on the road or uh, you know, not, uh, so I would say, low middle class people. They'll be speaking French and uh, Tamil. So that's pretty interesting. And whenever there's, when there are elections in France, there will be a, a voting held in Pondicherry as well at the consulate for the French citizens settled in Pondicherry to vote as well. That's fascinating. I never knew this about the, the Indian history. I didn't either. And now I want to visit even more. <laughs> wow. So um, let's go in a little bit of a different direction and uh, play a game. Um, Dr. Okay. Pai, are, you, are you ready for that? Sure. Okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to put 60 seconds on the clock and we're just going to ask you some random questions. And uh, you can just answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, and they'll be very quick um, questions, and we'll see how many we can get through. So um, I have a minute on the clock, and uh, we'll start with Christine, and she'll give the first question, and then I'll start the timer. Okay. Um, what is your favorite kind of music? English pop, 60s, 70s. I love it. What's your go-to guilty pleasure? Food. Uh, where is the last place that you traveled to by plane? To Pune, I think, in India. And what is your favorite word or one that you really like? <laughs> I can't think of a favorite word as such off the top of my head. And this is something related to food, I suppose, maybe cake. <laughs> <laughs> Works for me. What is the last thing that you read other than email? There was a history of mankind, I think. That's what I, 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 I read. It was about... I don't remember the exact title, but it was about the history of mankind over, you know, how man first started and then how it, how it came to the modern age. Okay. And we're out of time, but I want to give you one more question. What is a compliment that you received that you really liked? I would say it was, I recently conducted a faculty development program and they said that the experience they got in the faculty development program changed their life. Wow. Wow. That's a big compliment. That's great. Oh, that's powerful. Um, and I actually have one more question that I am just, um, I really would like to ask, which is, um, is there life after death? The Hindu philosophy says yes. 
I'm not sure. I've got a very scientific mind, so I'm not sure that I completely am sold on it. Um, so the jury is still out on that one, I think. You can. We we can all In find out opinion. later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be continued. All right. Um, so coming around the corner to um, to the to the end here of our time together, think about one person who is meaningful in your life, and it doesn't necessarily need to be somebody that you knew personally. What did you learn from them, or um, what do you admire about them? I would have to say my wife, uh, because uh, I have been away from home for long periods of time. When I was in Malaysia and Singapore, I was uh, alone there, and uh, I have an elderly mother at home, as well as a mentally and physically challenged sister, and uh, she took up the entire responsibility of running the home in my absence, uh, you know, not only within the home, but doing all the other uh, mundane stuff like banking, shopping, and looking after my sister, everything. So, uh, I mean, she's she's been a pillar of strength for me. So I'd say it's my wife, Pranati. Ah, oh, she sounds like an incredible woman. So one final question. Uh, what is one hope you have for simulation in the future? I would say... Basically, penetration of simulation to a much wider audience internationally. Uh, what is happening in the U.S., maybe in Europe, etc., I feel uh, simulation is quite patchy if you look at uh, the global perspective. And uh, I would say that it needs to be better accepted internationally. And uh, there have to be lower cost solutions for developing countries with support from the developing wo uh, developed world. So I think... Uh, that's what I, I hope for as far as simulation is concerned, a better penetration. Great. Thank you. A actually, I just thought of um, something that I wanted to ask you about, which is there's a brand new simulation journal debuting in the world, speaking of international, uh, called the International Journal of Healthcare Simulation. Tell us about your role with that journal. Okay, so the International Journal of Healthcare Simulation uh, was started with this idea that we wanted to expand the role of simulation in this part of the world. So it is a journal which we hope will represent not only uh, the US or Europe uh, as the standard or the traditional journals have so far, but we hope to get articles from uh, more developing uh, countries and we are hoping to mentor people to write articles uh, from this part of the world as well. And in keeping with that ethos, uh, Deborah Nestel is uh, the editor-in-chief of the journal. Um, and you know how she's got a lot of experience, very dynamic. And I'm one of the senior editors. So we have a good representation on the, uh, both on the editorial board as well as in the operation board uh, and in the senior management from India as well. So Sandeep Ghani, I think Christine, you met him when uh, you had come to India. So he's uh, one of on the management uh, board and on the operations board of the channel. And I'm a senior editor on the editorial uh, board as well. And uh, that first issue has just come out. It's online. And I would encourage uh, everybody to go and have a look at it and uh, do contribute. Well, congratulations on the kickoff of the journal. We will definitely check it out. And uh, Dr. Pai, thank you so much for joining us here today on the podcast. Thank you, Christine and Bob. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This has been BS Beyond Simulation with your hosts, Christine Park and Bob Kaiser. Please join us for a future episode. Mm -hmm.